Well, there isn't one particular Bible verse that I'm going to turn you to because there'll be seven different ones, really. This communion sermon is called The Seven Sayings of Jesus on the Cross. The Seven Sayings of Jesus uh, on the Cross. You may have heard a sermon before on the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, and we're going to look at them afresh uh, this morning. There are two, and only two, um, remembrance ordinances in the New Testament. The first one instituted by Christ is the Lord's Supper, which we're having this morning. And in the Lord's Supper, we especially remember the death of Jesus. And I must say, over the years as a Christian, I don't know about you, but there's nothing that concentrates my mind more than when we have the Lord's Supper on the death and crucifixion of Jesus. But there's also a second remembrance ordinance as well, which is the Lord's Day, which is the day upon which Jesus was raised from the dead. So we have a double bonus for us this morning. We have the Lord's Supper also on the Lord's Day, to remember both the crucifixion and death of Jesus, but also his resurrection from the dead. So, uh, in our worship, uh, we're reminded that we have the Lord's Supper. This is a public meal. The Westminster Confession rightly denies that people should have private masses, it calls it, uh, or administering the Lord's Supper privately at home. This is not to be administered privately at home. It is a a meal for God's people in the midst of uh, the church. It's a public ordinance and it's a blessing. Uh, So we're going to look at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. But what we notice as we look at the seven sayings of Jesus upon the cross, that Jesus is not full of chatter the whole time that he's on the cross. Uh, There's a lot of silence uh, in Jesus as he's upon the cross. And... uh, And we tend to forget the silence of Jesus even before he stood before, um, I think it was Caiaphas, and it says, and Jesus was silent. And that's an important fact for us because it's recorded in Isaiah. Do you remember that prophecy? Isaiah 53 and verse 7. Speaking of Jesus, it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, this sermon we're focusing on the seven sayings upon the cross when he did open his mouth, but this prophecy teaches us that Jesus wasn't opening his mouth the whole time he was upon the cross. And in Isaiah, again, 53, there was the same epic verses. We read this. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Well, what wonderful words we have there in Isaiah 53. And we know this hymn, William Cooper wrote this hymn 
Uh, it's a wonderful hymn. It's called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Maybe some of you have memorized most of that hymn, and, and why not? It's a fantastic hymn. But one of the verses says this. See if you can memorize this. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Aren't we thankful this morning for the power of the blood of Jesus? That the blood of Jesus didn't run out of power in, in, in 1954 or, or in 19-whatever. The blood of Jesus has the same power today as when Jesus shed that blood on the hill of Golgotha. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved and forgiven of their sin. And so we're thankful for the blood of Jesus, which availeth much for sinners. I know it can seem unusual. I don't know if you're used to coming to church or not, but to be hearing about blood? Why do we need to hear about blood? But it's absolutely central to the Christian message of salvation, that blood speaks that, uh, that a death was required. And this death was not an ordinary person. It was the very Son of God who had never committed a sin. So we'll look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, first of all, at the first saying that Jesus uh, gave on the cross. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, and if I read from verse 32 to 38, <clears throat> Luke records this for us. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it says, and they cast lots to divide his garments. This opening prayer, really, of Jesus upon the cross will be striking, not only now, but for all eternity. That on the cross, as Jesus was crucified, and there was a a criminal on one side and one on the other side, and Jesus was being treated like a criminal, though he wasn't a criminal. He was perfectly innocent and God's son. And, and around Jesus as he was dying, there was a compassionless crowd. Imagine that. Composed of Roman soldiers who just nailed him to the cross. Uh, there were people who came to mock him while he was crucified on the cross. And yet God ordained that even in his death, Jesus would be central. Aren't we praising God for that? That he, he wasn't crucified on the outer cross or the outer cross on that place. Uh, he was central. Uh, one, because it says in Colossians that Christ must have the preeminence. But also as well, the good shepherd had the opportunity to minister to these men who were also dying with him. And we'll come back to that one a little bit later. So here we see that people were mocking him, yet in his death, he began praying like this. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, what an example that is for us and for all eternity. Now, these men and women had rejected Jesus in their sinfulness, 
Um, but we remember, you know, the Lord's Prayer. Maybe some of you memorize the Lord's Prayer, and there's that line there. It says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And Jesus is putting into practice here what he's been teaching others to do. And so what can we learn about Christ here this morning? Christ is not man-focused, but he's firstly God-focused, focused on his Father. And he teaches us our own need of forgiveness, uh, which Jesus in the Lord's Prayer calls uh, our sins, he calls debts. And once we realize that we owe a debt to God that we can never pay, and therefore to come to the Lord and ask for forgiveness for a debt that we could never pay, then out of that in the Lord's Prayer, it then says that we pray forgiveness for others. And so this morning we have the Lord's Supper, but we don't forgive simply because we have the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're to forgive in season and out of season. And Jesus here is not simply mechanically saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But that's the, the love of God and, and love for his neighbors and forgiving them, knowing that they were fulfilling the plan of God. But what hatred they poured upon Jesus. Who, who on earth would want to die a crucifixion? Um, but our second heading, as we move on, it, from that, Father, forgive them, for we know not what they do, is found in John's Gospel, chapter 19, and verse 26. And I am as best as possible attempting to do them in the order that they actually happened as Jesus was crucified. He was crucified for six hours, and sometimes when you read the Gospels, you get the time that he was first crucified, and, and then when he, he, his crucifixion was finished, but it records it in the local time scale, which is different to our clocks. You get the third hour and the sixth hour and the ninth hour, which refers to 9 a.m. in the morning, 12 midday, and then 3 o'clock in the afternoon or thereabouts. But the second phrase is found in John's Gospel, chapter 19 and verse 26. And what do we, what do we find here, verse 26? It says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. What a, what a beautiful phrase we have here. This is the, the, the second of seven sayings. This could have been arranged perhaps before he was crucified, but in God's plan that wasn't to be the case. He, he actually speaks from the cross. He, it says here that when he saw his mother and the disciple, John calls himself here, the disciple, but it's referring to John, the apostle. Uh, when he saw the two of them, he, he takes care of his mother. And we think, what an example. Remember Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He said that in John 10, I think it's verse 11. I am the good shepherd. And then he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And it's hard for any of us to imagine crucifixion, I think, isn't it? Uh, we're told it, it, from historians 
that it's like dying a thousand deaths. And so here he's being crucified and he sees his mother and the good shepherd in action is taking care of the needs of his mum, his earthly mum, and also John the Apostle at the same time. And it says, and from that hour the disciple took her to his home. So John was an apostle, but he was given this specific command from Jesus while he was being crucified that in all of his preaching and whatever else he was to be doing later on, he was also to take care of his mum. And what does that teach us? Uh, it teaches us the fifth commandment. You know the fifth commandment? What does it say? It says, honor your father and mother that life may go well with you, you may live long on the earth. And so here we see of the second sayings of Jesus upon the cross that he's taking care of his mother's needs. I wonder what she went through as she saw the Son of God be nailed to the tree. What a horrific way to see one of your children die. But the third saying which will be familiar to many of us, is back in Luke's Gospel again. It's about one of these thieves on the cross in Luke 23, 43. And it'll be familiar to many of us. Luke 23, 43. What does Jesus say here? Well, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do, not, do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise what, what wonderful words we have here and we know in john 6 37 he says all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me i will never cast out i will never cast out and actually in the narrative we find that there are these two criminals and in the early stages both of them are throwing insults on jesus but during their crucifixion, the Holy Spirit begins to work on one of them, clearly one of them, as Jesus said, uh, with all that the Father gives me. One of them, it was ordained by God that he had been given to Jesus, and he calls out to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And we can be greatly encouraged this morning that when we call upon the name of the Lord, the Lord hears he doesn't cast us out. And look at how Jesus responds. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And we don't know his name. There's many people in the Gospels, we don't know their names. We don't know the name of the Canaanite woman who came to Jesus, whose daughter had a demon. Remember that one, uh, that woman. And uh, the only person in the Gospels whom Jesus says has great faith. And we, we never know her name. And this criminal we don't know his name, but we will meet them in heaven and they'll be given a new name. What a wonderful thing that is to think that this man unexpectedly got saved at the last minute almost, isn't it? Not quite the last minute, but very close. It, 
it's interesting. As far as I know, this is the only deathbed conversion that we have recorded in the Bible. There might be others, but as far as I know, I know it's the only deathbed conversion. Uh, but what a wonderful Savior we have who saves to the uttermost. And this man's sins are forgiven. And we need to be reminded, though, that some people think, well, I'm going to put off coming to Christ. I can pray later in life, or I might pray on my deathbed like this man. But the fact is, we don't get the choice to choose on the day that we die. We recently were remembering 9-11. Remember that? 20 years ago. And there were many people who went to work that day, and they didn't choose to die on that day. And we don't get the choice of when we're going to die. For some, it can come very unexpectedly. So therefore, if you've never called upon the name of Jesus, I would urge you to call upon Jesus today and, and look to Christ like this thief on the cross or one of the thieves on the cross. Well, our fourth heading, we now move to midday. Jesus has been on the cross now for three hours, and it's from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. Matthew's Gospel, 27, it says from verse 45, it says, this is the fourth saying, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was at the sixth hour that darkness came over the whole land for three hours until the ninth hour. It wasn't darkness just over Jerusalem, but it was over the whole land. And there's been many a sermon rightly made about this darkness that came over uh, uh, Israel at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. And this is very significant as then Jesus in the ninth hour, uh, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And many preachers have rightly brought out that the greatest part of the suffering of Jesus wasn't simply the crucifixion, all the horrors and the shame and the humiliation uh, that goes with that, but we remember that Jesus is the Lamb of God and uh, he became an atonement for sin. And it's something that we will never imagine. Imagine, here Jesus is a man, he's the God-man, with an untainted conscience. And now he becomes a sin offering upon the cross. The, the, the weight of sin is laid upon Christ. Words can't even express what we can think about this. But what we do know is that he cites Psalm 22 and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's fulfilling the decree of the Father. In Scripture, we find it was through the eternal Spirit that he offered himself up, and, and he needed the Holy Spirit to, to endure through such suffering. And we're going to come to our next heading now, which is the fifth one, 
which is I thirst. And John 19, 28, that's simply what Jesus said. And for the Lord's Supper, we're going to be drinking a, a little bit of wine. It's not much. But what a price Jesus paid so that you and I can drink that wine in remembrance of the blood that Jesus shed, in remembrance of the atonement, the perfect atonement that he made. So the fifth saying is in John 19, 28, Jesus says, I thirst. But what we learn is that he's fulfilling the scripture. And we ask, well, what scripture? It's from, uh, from Psalm 69. What does that say? It says, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Just imagine, here is the Son of God nailed to the tree. It was under Pilate's orders that we read about earlier. Imagine Pilate and the expensive wine and drinks that he would drink. And then we see the eternal Son of God who created all the vine plants that there are in this world. And we think the best thing that the world that they could offer Jesus in his hour of need was sour wine. And let's be reminded of that when we may be tempted by the world and think, well, look at the world. It says here, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and, and held it up to his mouth. Earlier on, at the beginning of his crucifixion, uh, they offered him some kind of painkiller. Remember that? And he refused it. He refused to take painkillers so that he wouldn't feel uh, the effect of crucifixion. He said, no, but on this occasion now, this is not painkiller, it's sour wine. And that's the best that the world could offer. And it clearly lubricated his mouth because it is a, an exhausting experience being crucified. In the midday sun, though the sun had gone down, it was, well, not gone down, but there was darkness. And the sixth saying is found in John's Gospel, chapter 19 and verse 30. Again, simple words. And John 19 and verse 30, it says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Now, in Greek, actually, it's recorded that he spoke a single word, and it was spoken loud enough so that people could hear what he said and could record it down like John the Apostle. And these are some of the most wonderful words I think we get in Scripture. They're priceless words, aren't they? And uh, it's a particular Greek tense which is known as the perfect tense, which is recorded. And it's a tense that we don't really have in English, but it indicates this, a past event with present effect. A past event with uh, 
present effect. So though Jesus was crucified and said, it is finished, the power of the cross is as powerful today as it ever was and will be. We could translate what Jesus said perhaps like this. Jesus said, it is perfectly perfect. It is completely complete. Everything was fulfilled. There was nothing left. In Ecclesiastes, I don't know how familiar you are with Ecclesiastes, but in chapter 3, in verse 14, we read these wonderful words, which I read and it really points me to Christ. It says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. And when Jesus said it is finished, that we know that nothing can be added to what Jesus accomplished. Nothing can be taken away from what Jesus accomplished. The devil cannot take anything away from what Jesus accomplished. We can't add to it. We can't take anything away from it, but it's the foundation for our salvation. And our salvation is based on the merits of Christ. Do you know that hymn by Top Lady? He says this, Nothing in my hands do I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. Are you clinging to the cross this morning? Are you looking to Jesus? Are you looking away from yourself? If we look to ourselves, we see our failures, we see our sin, we see our misery, we see our disappointment, we see so many things. But then when we look away to Christ, we see a perfect atonement where he spoke and said, it is finished. But we're not quite finished with the sermon yet because the seventh saying and the last saying that Jesus said is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23 and verse 46. Luke 23 and verse 46. He's just announced that he's finished. His atonement is complete. And Jesus dies like nobody else. In Luke 23 and verse uh, 44, we read, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, his final call was with a loud voice, and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we just sung from Psalm 31. Those exact words. And Jesus citing the words of Psalm 31. He's saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That, that though Jesus was crucified, it wasn't really the crucifixion that killed him because he laid down his own life. In fact, they were even surprised. Remember when they came to the cross, Jesus died already and the other two were alive. Why? Because he, he laid down his life. He he. In old, the old translation says, you know, he gave up the ghost, uh, uh, gave up his spirit to God. What a wonderful way for us to be exhorted about dying ourselves, that 
We could pray that prayer if we're a Christian. On our deathbed, if we are able to, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus did. But then he was buried. But praise God on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And he committed his spirit to God, and God tended for his spirit. And three days later, his body and soul came back together in his resurrected body. He wasn't just brought back to life. He was given a new resurrection body. So there, there are seven sayings of Jesus upon the cross as we come to the Lord's Supper. What, what glory is the message of Christ? How we can marvel at what he accomplished for us. And may you and I, may we, may we bow in worship this morning. I find for me sometimes... Sometimes these truths are too familiar. Sometimes it doesn't really sink in. But these lines by Bonar come to mind to express our emotions, I think. Bonar said this, when we think about Jesus upon the cross, Glory be to God the Father. Glory be to God the Son. Glory be to God the Spirit. Great Jehovah, three in one. Glory, 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 while eternal ages run. Glory be to him who loved us, washed us from each spot and stain. Glory be to him who bought us, made us kings with him to reign. Glory, 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 glory to the Lamb that once was slain. What a message. What a saviour.